Hello and welcome to the Virginia Woolf podcast, which is hosted by Literature Cambridge. I'm Karina Yakovovich, and today I have the great pleasure of speaking with Holly James Johnston. Holly is an MST student in English at the University of Oxford. Aside from her academic work, she is the founder and coordinator of LGBTQ house tours at Strawberry Hill House. She also performs as a drag king under the name Orlando. Taking her name from Virginia Woolf's Orlando, her drag melds masculinities and femininities together through lip sync and dance. She recently appeared alongside art historian and curator Stephen Calloway in The Art of Being a Dandy, a short film for the Aubrey Beardsley exhibition, which is currently showing at the Tate Britain. So first question um, is, one is, we always start off with a question like this, which is along the lines of, you know, when did you first read Wolf or when did you first come up with the idea? But I'm really, really intrigued to know when you first started to read Wolf and what she meant to you at the time, if anything. So I first read Wolf in a sick form. I can't remember which was the first book I read. It was either The Waves or Orlando. I think it was The Waves. In terms of Orlando, it was a teacher that recommended um, the book to me, so shout out to Miss Huntley. Um, and she told me it was written for Wolf's lover, Vita Sackville-West, who at the time I knew nothing about, but now I am very much acquainted with uh, through my research. And at the time, I think Orlando was the perfect book for me to read. I knew I was queer, but I didn't know which form of queer I was. Um, mm. It was also a very tender and delicate time. I think the penny was dropping with my teachers and student and kind of um, fellow students that I wasn't straight, but mm. um, I personally didn't know which form of wasn't straight I was. Um, and actually, as events, as it panned out, and as events panned out, I didn't come out on my own terms. So... It was just, it was the perfect balm to that time and that experience. Um, I think Orlando deals with queerness in such a quiet way and mm -hmm. her explorations of queer identity are so quiet and subtle. So I think if you are in that questioning phase or that um, beginnings time, which can be so, especially at some, at a time like sick form, just so awkward, mm -hmm. um, it was just, um, it was just what I needed um, in book form. It's lovely to be able to have those discussions in the classroom and you focus your attention on the text, but really the students are then able to articulate something that's actually maybe going on amongst themselves. And as you say, it is, people don't think of Orlando as being subtle in its queerness necessarily, but, but it really is because it's so humorous. So you think it's all a big joke. And I think a lot of the contemporary readers thought, that it, it was just a sort of playing around. But then for those who see it, and exactly. they know exactly what's happening. And if you know the history as well, and you're acquainted with the story behind it, then obviously it has even more meaning. So I was also wondering then, moving on slightly later in your life, at, at what point did you decide to get into drag performance? Um, I was in the second year of my undergrad degree. And I'd been interested in drag, and I'd been looking for an entry point into drag for a while, but at the time, all I knew about drag was RuPaul's Drag Race, which mm. set a precedent of what drag is, which is drag queens, which is predominantly gay men. So I just, I didn't know where to begin, and I think I was worried that anything I did, someone would just point the finger and say, well, that's not drag, kind of purely because I wasn't a man. 
but how it happened, um, and this is a sort of, I think, I see it as a well-told story now, about where I started was I was watching the film adaptation, um, the Sally Potter film it's adaptation. It's amazing. It's a wonderful it? film. I mean, Tilda and Quentin, just it's, perfect cast. Yes. Um, yeah, so I was, I was watching it. And I came to the end um, and the sort of rolling credits and there was a song by Jimmy Somerville called Coming and it the lyrics were saying I'm neither a man nor a woman and it was just, I was just entranced by this song and suddenly mm. I thought maybe there's something in this and maybe this can be where I start. So I did a lip sync and danced the song and that was at the Royal Voxel Tavern at a Tuesday night called Barbot. Mm-hmm. And they've been running there for sort of, I think, a decade now. It's very well established. And they have, a, they have an open mic section. So if anyone out there wants to start off drag and they don't know where to begin, if you're in London, I just do Barbot. It's, I just, they took me under their wing. And as I was so nervous about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was so nervous about thinking this isn't drag or sort of someone's going to tell me it's not. Um, but it was, and then it was Ingo Kando, who is the organiser who prompted me to say Orlando should be the name. So I think in sick form where Orlando, the book, was a source of comfort, um, in the context of drag, Orlando was a source of confidence. And I took up this, this almost concept of Orlando for my own and made it my own. That's incredible. I think it's... It is a creative text as well. And, and you think of drag as being naturally creative, but it's interesting that you came to it and felt this reticence because you feel there are rules. You know, there is, there's something implicitly, because it is sort of a, a ritualistic spectacle. There are certain conventions that have become classic and, and certain ways of appearing and ways of dressing that people are now very, very familiar with through, through RuPaul's Drag Race and a whole language, a lexicon around it as well. And you think, can I change? Can I can I do this in a approach this from a different way? And it's amazing seeing drag kings do that and actually engage with what is ultimately a subversive performance anyway, and play with the rules. And I feel like Wolf does the same thing with her, her text. Fiction is subversive, it's meant to be playful, it's, you're meant to be dismantling things. And she takes the form of the novel. And she totally tears it apart. She takes time apart. She takes everything and and just plays with it in the most fantastic way. It's interesting. So, so it was someone else's idea to, to stick with that name. Yeah, I think I was almost too shy to take up that name. Yeah. And I thought, oh, well, I can't take Orlando, but I'm glad I have now because I'll yeah. someone else would have. Someone would have done yeah. it. I'm amazed that no yeah. one has. But... Actually, you know, I did meet, um, well, virtually, um, sort of like another Orlando who lives in Portugal. We had a really good discussion because we'd taken the name Orlando for the exact same reason. Oh so it's just proof that I think Orlando, it, it lends itself so naturally to drag um, and particularly drag kings, I think, mm. um, because drag kings tend to be individuals who are assigned female at birth. And if you've read Wolf, you would maybe resonate with the kind of gender frustration that I think she expresses in a lot of her work. I feel like she articulates the frustration around being female in Orlando much better than she articulates the frustration around being male. There are some frustrations, but really Orlando as a man is quite privileged. She's very lucky. He gets to go to big parties and seduce lots of women. And his his pain and suffering comes from losing his the love of his life. And you know his pains are sort of adolescent pains, human pains. But then when in 
in his film it's kind of it's a joke really yes so yeah it's heartbroken for Sasha it's sort of oh dear Yes, yeah. exactly. And it's so melodramatic in yes, the book no, as well. It is it is over the top. And then you see when she, when she does become a woman, suddenly, I mean, it's still fun, it's still playful, but there are a lot more barriers in place. One thing that I was really curious about is how you gender your drag persona, because obviously we've been talking about it as a, a drag king act, but, you know, and queens are often she- and kings are often he, but then of course Orlando's both, and you could say they, they're sort of non-binary, but then at no point is Orlando not gendered, Orlando is alternately sort of he, she, so do you feel like you go between he and she is on stage, or are you, are you something else, are you, are you kind of beyond that? I mean, I think I use, in drag, I use he and they, mm-hmm. um, they is always a good option in kind of social spaces um if you're not acquainted with someone's maybe personal or drag pronouns um but no you're right Orlando in the book is either male or female and it's always androgynous but it's always gendered um and I think I don't I think they is just a brilliant name to use really Mm -hmm. because it does open up a new kind of space and I think I think with my drag work, I was trying to break down, even in drag, it's, it's kind of very rigid, it's, or at least um, traditionally or historically it might have been seen as quite rigid, it's either a man dressing up as a woman or a woman dressing up as a man, but actually there are women who dress up as drag queens, um, mm. there are I've not seen men, many, but Sasha Galore once did a, did a drag king act. Mm. And also, increasingly, I think it's really interesting to look at the relationship between self, the kind of personal self, and the drag persona, because I know lots of drag kings who aren't women, and they are either transmasculine or non-binary, and therefore there is a special kind of kinship or closeness actually between the the self and drag persona because drag is a performance of gender but it's not necessarily actually a performance of the opposite gender so I've kind of built on Wolf's concept of Orlando by opening it out to this space where perhaps they as the pronoun can account for these kind of ambiguities between masculinity and femininity or womanhood and manhood I found that as well in terms of writing criticism or when I'm writing about Orlando or teaching Orlando obviously there are bits when I'm talking about certain bits of the text I will use he or she and then if I need to talk about Orlando as a character more broadly I'm then slipping into they and it's all very very contextual based on the meaning of the sentence and which Orlando you know which kind of incarnation of Orlando I'm talking about and there are some there have been times when I've thought no scrap this why don't I just go back through the whole essay and just write they and it's so it's a question that that I've been playing around with you know even as I'm writing which meaning is most appropriate and which meaning allows me also to accurately express Wolf's intention which is not to avoid gender not to necessarily say that it's all fluid but to 
to represent gender in different ways or represent it in sometimes very binary ways. So Orlando was released at the same time as Radcliffe Hall's book, Well of Loneliness, and some of our listeners will be familiar with that text. It's commonly referred to, perhaps erroneously, as you know the first lesbian novel. Now, while Wolfe's novel was greeted with lots of praise and quick sales, Radcliffe Hall's novel was famously subject to a huge legal battle over whether or not it was obscene. Why do you think that people found Orlando so enjoyable and acceptable and they found Radcliffe Hall's novel so so offensive? I mean, bless Radcliffe Hall. I love her. I'm writing my thesis on her. Um, <laughs> Fantastic. I, I adore her. But it's a very, very miserable book. I mean, the ending where it's like, please let us exist, you know, is sort of, oh, just bless. You know, it's sort of, yeah, on that basic level, Orlando was just a far more enjoyable book. But also the thing is, is Radcliffe Hall set out to write The Well of Loneliness um, as, this is paraphrasing, but a long and very serious novel on the subject of sexual in- inversion. So she was engaging directly with sexological taxonomies of the time. She wanted it to be almost like a literary case study of these um, sexological discourses that were seeking mm. to define and categorise sexuality. And it was also political. So she had a purpose and she wanted to shed light on the plight and suffering of queer individuals living in England in the early 20th century. So it kind of, it couldn't be very happy, basically. And also, I think she she never tackles the subject of sexuality so kind of head-on and directly. And I think her intention was to be direct and straightforward and to the point of sexuality. And she had this purpose, and I think it, therefore it played out in the way that the novel does play out, where it's a novel that, that documents the suffering of a queer individual who's just trying to be accepted in the world for who they are, whereas with Orlando, it is seen as a kind of a love letter to Vita Sackville-West. And Wolf, I mean, she did sort of often want to do away with sexuality as defined by male psychologists and sexologists. And I think she just wanted to have fun with it and take it out of the realm of science um, and bring it into the realm of the fantastical and the playful. And therefore it just, it does fundamentally make for a much more playful read. And also it's very coded in its queerness. Um, So it goes under the radar. Whereas Radcliffe is, not that she was asking for trouble, but she was asking for trouble, so. You know, I've never thought about it that way. I never thought of the court case as in a way being a sort of affirmation of, of what she talks about in the text. She, You're right, she she says that life as an invert, invert being the contemporary term for lesbian, is very difficult. You're faced with pressures from, from all sides that ultimately make the protagonist Stephen Gordon's relationship completely untenable. And you sort of wonder if it had been received in an alternate universe, you know, with with praise and acceptance, that would disprove the thesis that she lays out. I was wondering, since we've got on to the topic of Radcliffe Hall, if you could tell us a little bit more about your research, because you are, I believe, you're writing about Radcliffe Hall at the moment. So my thesis 
is in early stages, but I'm looking at Radcliffe-Hall's representations of queer identity across her works. So we have The Well of Loneliness, and that is very well researched and documented and written about. Yes. But I'm interested in how queerness is expressed in her earlier works where she is not so direct and I'm looking at cross-gender identification so where she'll write herself into the character of a man and how she's using this technique to write about herself but through the guise of a man and then kind of the unlit lamp is a bit of a turning point in her work which marks a departure where it's kind of, you, you've got a character who, Joan, um, Joan Ogden, who's the protagonist, and she is clearly queer, but it is still very under the surface and through kind of quasi kind of platonic romantic relationship with the governor, and then the move to the world of loneliness. Um, so I'm looking at these representations, but increasingly I have found that Radcliffe Hall is a very difficult individual to categorise. I was recently listening to Jana Funk on the Bad Gays podcast um, on the episode about Radcliffe Hall and I was really interested in her usage of the pronouns, both the the female pronoun she and the gender-neutral pronoun they for Radcliffe Hall because increasingly queer studies are finding ways to acknowledge that people's gender identities and sexualities are not so simple and I'm finding ways of talking about that and bringing those approaches and reconsiderations of gender and sexuality into my thesis. So it's finding ways of not being anachronistic but being open and maybe seeing anachronism as a useful lens i think it's it's still a kind of subject of debate and careful negotiation but it's definitely it's it's a fruitful ground and it's like what you were saying with orlando where how do you refer to um, orlando the character in academic work when sometimes it seems easy to use a blanket they but then that doesn't speak to the gendered experience of orlando as a man and orlando as a woman and it's, I think it's really interesting the way that criticism and academic practice is going when you negotiate current language usage and understandings of queer identity and gender and sexuality with historical conceptualizations of queerness. Yeah, I think it's, a, it's an ongoing project really of, within academia, and I, I see it happening beyond queer studies as well, is trying obviously to use this brilliant academic lexicon or this modern lexicon that we have um, that currently expresses meaning to our readers who exist now in the present, but that also does justice to the historical situation and that is historically accurate. And I, I find myself doing this as well, knowing whether, for example, to use queer as a historical term. Is this a term that obviously they would have understood? Yes, but in a completely different way or in a slightly different way to us. Do I need to be aware of those residences? Yes, I do. But, you know, I also want to be able to communicate quickly and easily with my readers when I'm trying to, to get my meaning across. And obviously, in a way, ideally, that doesn't obscure the truth. So it's it's really hard to, to kind of tune in to what you think the individual person 100 years ago would have thought about themselves and then trying to communicate that to a modern audience 
in, in a language that, that makes sense to them. Do you wish that Radcliffe Hall was known as well as Wolf is? Because Wolf obviously is, is a very well-known figure. She's got her own podcast now. You know, she's practically famous. But Radcliffe Hall is still, you know, to the average person on the street, is, is not very well known. Do you wish she was more popular? I can see why someone like Wolf would be more popular than Radcliffe Hall, mm. um, given that a lot of Radcliffe Hall's works are quite despairing. But I think she or they played an incredibly important part in British lesbian culture and the kind of awakening of the of the British people kind of back then to lesbianism and queer female sexuality. And I think this does need to be acknowledged. Are there any other writers from the early 20th century, queer gay writers, you think that, that we should be reading more of? I could produce a long list, but I'm going to narrow it down to three writers. Okay. I've got Vita Sackville West. Mm. All Passion Spent has really tender queer undertones to it. And then Portrait of a Marriage is so unabashed and so frank in its articulations of how Vita herself experienced her sexuality and the conflict this had with her marriage. Um, it's I, it's so beautiful. I just, I, I, you just, you think, oh my gosh, this is what people were really thinking at the time, but they can't, they couldn't say it. And they had to say it in roundabout ways like Virginia Woolf does, whereas mm. this was something that she wrote for herself. It's a piece that is seeking closure. It's it's really, really poignant, and you feel like you're getting such an intimate insight into what it was like to be queer at that time. Um, Morris uh, by Ian Forster is another mm. piece which holds that same... Um, intimate poignancy to it um, because it was it was written 1913 14 but not published until mm. after his death and so you, you again have and the same with Portrait of a Marriage that was only published after Vita's death and with Morris you get the same sense of mm. saying what you want to say but you can't say at the time and the third is Dusty Answer which um, is a really rare insight into uh, bisexuality actually re representations of bisexuality at that time um, and it's another kind of you know classic coming of age poignant tender heart-wrenching all at once um, and that's another one I loved. You're also known for your work on dandyism as well and you did this absolutely fantastic short film about dandyism for for the Tate Britain, which I, I enjoyed so much. It was so interesting. And I learned, I have to say, I learned a lot about what dandyism was. I always think Beau Brummel, I think, you know, quite stereotypical things, but you explained it so brilliantly. So I was wondering if you could just explain for our listeners what dandyism is. I think succinctly, dandyism is impeccable and immaculate taste and style. It is a lifestyle, a way of being and existing in the world. But... This is why I think it lends itself so well to drag, um, and my drag in particular, because it is, at least for me, a very unsustainable way of being, because 
you know, I may like to, I do not have impeccable and immaculate taste and style every minute of the day. It's the goal, but we're not going to get there. Um, and also, historically and traditionally, it was associated with men, and it was about being a man, but performing a very stylized version of masculinity, which is why the video was so interesting, because we broke that down and we opened the, the idea of dandyism or the concept of dandyism up to it being performed or embodied by someone who is not a man. Um, it was also interesting to look at um, Mabel, Beardsley, Aubrey Beardsley's sister, who cross-dressed, and there is a, I think it's either a painting or a drawing, an image of her where she looks very dandyish, and it was interesting to look at that concept of dandyism from a different viewpoint, basically, and looking at dandyism more as something that can be embodied or performed or inhabited by by someone who is not, who does not have that kind of very traditional male upper class kind of status. And throughout the 20th century, you can see it, it didn't really die a death. Whenever people had money for clothes, and you saw this in, in the 50s as well, in the 60s, young men doing the teddy boy look and essentially being a different type of dandy, again, sort of another iteration of it, less feminine, but certainly very well groomed and the whole zoot suit thing as well in, in the United States being super well dressed again a male culture do you think today it's possible to to still be a dandy in the same way as people were in the 1920s or do you think it's evolved into something else um I think there are there are still people walking the earth who would call themselves dandies and I admire them because that just takes a lot of work. But then it is, you know, that's... I think it's amazing that some people dress immaculately every day. Um, I wish... I mean, I think I used to wish I could do that, which is why I think I channeled it into my drag, because I I put all of that effort into something which is inherently a very temporary thing. Mm. Takes less effort if, you, if you're just going to do it for... A, well, it still takes a lot of effort, but it's very concentrated effort for a short period of time and everyone's looking at you so it's worth it I guess but you're right doing it every day would be a very very expensive habit Um, however I commend uh, those of you out there if there are any of you out there who do aspire to be a dandy or who are sometimes a dandy I'd say I'm badly dressed most days of the week Holly thank you so so much for coming in and talking to me today thank you for having me and you can see the short film The Art of Being a Dandy on the Tate Britain website you can also follow Holly on Instagram and Twitter at Orland Drag underscore.